Bible reading for this morning is from Jonah, chapter 4, verses 5 to 11. It's entitled, uh, Jonah's Anger at the Lord's Compassion. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Thank you, George. I love uh, everyone's reading, particularly George's reading, and I love how that story just ended. Who went to look up to go, has George lost his place? Or <laughs> hold, hold on to that. Hold on to that, because we do get to that. It's a very important and powerful part of the story of Jonah. Well, we're going to continue with this story, and this is the last week we're looking particularly at Jonah. Uh, of course, he's a prophet. Um, He was called and sent by God to go and preach this message of imminent judgment or pending judgment uh, for the city of Nineveh, the city of Nineveh uh, full of Assyrians and uh, a sworn enemy of the nation of Israel for many, many centuries. Um, And God wanted Jonah to go and to give them a chance to be able to repent. Uh, We learn and we understand that they were a city where much evil took place. And they were going to get an opportunity to experience God's undeserved mercy instead of his deserved judgment. And uh, this morning, as we finish off this last chapter, I want us to notice um, something that if the book of Jonah were made into a movie, I think most likely it was chapter 3 that would appear at least to be the climactic part of the story. You know how how a movie goes and there's that kind of a chapter or that event that's kind of it draws you in you think that's where that's where it peaked it might be easy to think that about chapter three the story so far seems to be leading up to this ministry of Jonah to the city of Nineveh and chapter three is when it finally happens after a whole lot of commotion and him running away and 
trying to thwart God's plans and God making his plans happen anyway and doing great miracles. And then, of course, chapter 3, as he finally comes to the city and it seems to work. You could summarise it like this. Um, he's a foreign prophet. He shows up in an Assyrian metropolis to denounce their wickedness and announce God's judgment. But instead of being lynched by a mob and dragged through the streets to Nineveh's city hall, Jonah's messages are listened to and taken to heart in a powerful way. You can see that as being the climactic scene if this story were a movie. Um, recall, will you, the city's response to Jonah's message that we heard two Sundays ago in chapter 3. It says in verse 5 that, five, that the Ninevites, from the greatest of them, that is right from the king, all the way down to the least of them, they humbled themselves and they threw themselves upon the mercy of God. And the dramatic outcome is revealed in verse 10 of chapter 3, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. And he did not bring them the destruction that he had threatened. And so it's these uh, amazing turn of events, that amazing turn of hearts, that transformation that we see that leads us to the situation described in chapter 4. But do you know what? Chapter 4 is actually the climactic part of the story of Jonah, if it were a movie. Not in terms of wild storms and strange man-swallowing fish, uh, nor the powerful cinematic scene of repentance from the Ninevites, but rather the major dilemma, the conflict that's happening within Jonah, almost reaches fever pitch in this last chapter. So we're going to have a think about this chapter in three parts, and uh, each part will draw us to that very, very abrupt ending. And it leaves us to ask questions of our own hearts. The challenge is for us this morning, as it always is with God's Word, but in a particularly poignant way. The first one concerns Jonah's objection to God. Just backing up the first four verses of chapter 4, uh, we're finally given a clear window into what is going on for Jonah, the deep inner conflict that he's going through. Um, you'll remember that we heard something of Jonah's heart in chapter 2 from his uh, pitiful prayer in the belly of the fish. Um, it was a heart that cried out in pious worship, in light of God's uh, rescue of him from drowning. Uh, it was, as we looked at, for, certainly far from a repentant heart, but his prayer did give us insight into what he knew about God. He had great confidence and trust in God. He had a good, biblical solid, biblically solid knowledge of God. But here, we're finally told in chapter 4, in Jonah's own words, why it was he ran away from God in the first place. The stunning and even shocking reason that Jonah ran away from the call of God was based entirely on the fact that Jonah knew exactly what God is like. He didn't run because sin had somehow gotten in the way and distracted him and clouded his view of who God was. Quite the opposite. It was actually his full knowledge of who God is and how God has revealed himself uh, to, to Jonah as an Israelite and to his own people. It was this revelation of God's character, this knowledge of God's character as being a gracious God, a merciful God, one slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And that's a quote straight from Exodus, well etched in the hearts and minds of God's people. And so when it came to the brutal and barbaric Ninevites, as an Israelite, Jonah would have happily embraced the character of God you know, the part about his justice and raw power, you know, the bit that he is uh, a God that 
that, that um, cannot, is a jealous God, you know, that, that cannot stand idolatry and, and the, false, the worship of false gods and that he's this powerful God and he wouldn't dare cross him because look out. But in this case, Jonah actually hated the fact that God was also a God of grace, of mercy and of love. That sounds disturbing to you, it should. It ought to disturb us. That's what this chapter in chapter 4 is all about. It's here that we see the ugliness of Jonah's sin-gripped heart. God's heart, you see, it's wide open um, to those guilty and undeserving deserving Ninevites, his own enemies, the enemies of his people. But Jonah's heart, it's quite the opposite. His heart was closed, it's locked down, it's dead-bolted and sealed. Jonah hated seeing the Ninevites repent. In fact, it it got him angry. We've heard that several times. He hated the fact that God chose to change his mind and be merciful towards them in response to their repentance. And you know what else he hated? He hated the fact that he was the catalyst for the whole thing. He hated the fact that it was him that brought these two things together by obediently, although with, you know, dragging... Um, is begrudgment a word? Probably not, you know what I mean. He, was, he wasn't the most um, passionate preacher, was he? He was quite a reluctant preacher, and yet it was his preaching that brought these two things together, and he would have hated that. In fact, as a loyal Israelite, he would rather have died than to be in the position he is right now. He's probably thinking, I've got to go home, I've got to get back to the capital city, I've got to tell these people that it was me that preached the message and got the Ninevites, the Assyrians, uh, to repent and to experience God's mercy, just like we've experienced it. You know, very hard. It'd be better off dying. He didn't want to live with that. Well, that's the first point, just backing up, looking at those first four verses. Now moving into our passage, uh, there's a lesson here for Jonah. And this is a lesson from God. We notice uh, that, um, that God does something, and he also doesn't do something in verses five to eight. Think about, think about how you would respond to that. Think about how you would respond, as a father, say, uh, to a child who's having a bit of a temper tantrum and keeps telling you how angry they are at your decisions, how much they hate your decisions. Think about if you had a daughter like that, um, who was talking and acting the way Jonah is talking and acting to God. What would you do if you saw kind of this kind of heart, this turmoil, this inner conflict that Jonah has seeping out? Well, many of us would, would be pulling rank, wouldn't we? We'd want to be responding firmly. We'd want to be... Um, responding deliberately and intentionally. These are polite PC words for disciplining a child. Um, it would be extremely disappointing, wouldn't it? And, and quite frustrating. We'd want to teach them a lesson and we'd want to use this opportunity to do so. Well, think about God for a moment. He's a holy God that we're talking about here. Is he really going to tolerate this? Is he really going to put up with this insolence? Is he going to put up with this rotten heart, this conflicted heart from Jonah? after all that he's done for him, after everything else try, uh, Jonah's tried to, to do, what does Jonah's self-centred, callous and grumbling heart really deserve? We all know, don't we? And yet God is a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And that's exactly how he is towards Jonah. God's wide open heart is once again on display, isn't it? In all its magnificent beauty. He doesn't scold Jonah, instead he takes him back to school and teaches him, or at least tries to, another lesson. 
but this time the classroom's not in the uh, guts of a fish, it is in the shade of a gourd plant, most likely, and we read uh, that both the great fish and the plant are actually appointed protagonists in this story. They're appointed by God. They were used in this miraculous way. Uh, with regard to the plant, uh, we read in verses 6 and 10 that it, it grew very, very large in just one night, it seemed. And so think about that scene. Jonah's preaching ministry in Nineveh comes to an end after 40 days. He's walked through the, the streets. Um, he's given them a, what an eight-word sentence of the message. Um, repent, we're going to get destroyed. Repent, we're going to get destroyed. And uh, he's ticked the box and he's done the job. But the destruction that God promises doesn't come because the people repent. And he's furious. So angry, in fact, that he begs to be allowed to just go away and die. But somehow he thinks that something might change. Maybe on the 41st day or the 42nd or 43rd day, the Ninevites will go, well, we dodged that bullet, didn't we? And very quickly, as humans do, they would go back to their wicked ways, back to the default of how they were before. And maybe then God will uh, come back to his original plan of judgment and he'll smite them off the face of the earth. I really think that's what was going on uh, in, in Jonah's life. It's why he removed himself from the city. He headed out east and he finds a spot somewhere away from it, but with a good view of it. And uh, he builds a small and uh, probably a very primitive, temporary sort of sh shelter for himself, a booth, as they're often known uh, by the Israelites. And however it was that he built this, obviously it wasn't doing a very good job. We can assume it had lots of gaps in the walls uh, and probably in the roof. It gave some shade, but clearly not enough. Because we know that when God made this plant to grow up overnight, it made Jonah very happy, it says, or exceedingly glad, your Bible might say. And it also eased his discomfort. But God, the great teacher's lesson has only just begun as he sits, as Jonah sits in this shady classroom. Um, he, he gives Jonah the plant in one night and the next morning he takes it away. And, and, his, and his appointments continue. Not only good do, did God uh, appoint or provide, your translation might say, appoint a worm to destroy the plant, but he also appoints a hot wind to blow. He also appoints the weather to get involved, the clouds to steer clear of Jonah's sweet little location. And he's stuck out in the desert with no shelter or shade. Verse 8 paints the picture. Suffering under the symptoms of heat stroke, Jonah once again announces that he'd be better off dead. He does that a lot, doesn't he? I'd be better off dead. Just, just take me out. So intense was his discomfort that he just wanted to die. Well, the third lesson continues. The third point, it's not only for Jonah, but it's also for us. Verses 9 to 10. Here's the final set of verses which extends God's lesson to us as well. Have a look at it again, those last uh, verses from 9 to 11. Just as Jonah did after verse 4, or in verse 4, after he said he was so angry that he, he wanted to die, uh, in verse 3, <clears throat> God asks Jonah again here in verse 9, so tell me, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Other translation might say, is this good of you to be angry? But this time, the object of Jonah's wrath isn't Nineveh, is it? Who's he angry at now? Or what's he angry at now? A plant. Specifically, the death of this plant. Why is he angry about a plant's demise? You see, it had proved to be a blessing to him personally, hadn't it? Made his life feel better. 
took away his discomfort. Again, it's all about Jonah. He knew it was a gift from God. He, he knew that no plants can grow that fast. He was happy to receive that kind of strange but divine um, sort of deliberate deliverance from his discomfort. And it's exactly those feelings which God knew he would experience. And have a look at what God does with those feelings that Jonah is experiencing. He takes them and he uses them to drive home the main point of this book for us all. Verse 10 to 11, And the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprung up overnight and it dies overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Do you see what God's done as the story abruptly ends? He turns the tables back onto Jonah. Apart from a few days while in the fish's stomach, Jonah has been obsessed, hasn't he, about the guilt of Nineveh. And, uh, and also in turmoil about what he knows of God's grace and mercy and the likely outcome of those two things converging. And right from the start of the story, when God first called him to go, he's never once been prepared to even look inward at his own heart. But that is exactly where God has brought him. Jonah is brought face to face with what's going on for him. His own tendency for self-pity. His own tendency for self-righteousness. His own tendency to think he's way better than what he actually is. And when that self-centeredness produces anger towards a whole lot of things going on in his life, but also towards God for doing for what he knew God would do all along, that is to show mercy and grace. Jonah now takes it out on a plant. That's the best he can do. Kind of reflects how small and narrow and intra, internal we become when we're focused on ourselves. Something that he had nothing to do with in the first place, a gift from God given to him miraculously, that in itself was another act of God's mercy and grace, wasn't it? And so God kind of says this, if I can paraphrase, really, Jonah, really? Really? You're upset about a plant that I gave you dying, but you can't so much as squeeze out even a single tear for 120,000 people created in my image, living in spiritual darkness, who are on the verge of total destruction. Goodness me, I had to hear gracious me, Gracious me, Jonah, even the animals, the cows are more valuable than a 24-hour shrub which comes and goes. How is it you felt nothing for these people? What is wrong with your heart, man? It's an incriminatory end to the story, really. In fact, you'll notice there is no happy ending. There isn't any nicely resolved wrap-up narration at the end, uh, the chapter in the story ends with what was uh, an unresolved question asked by God of Jonah. Should I not have concern for this great city, this great people, the people of Nineveh? Did Jonah learn anything here? Did he learn the lesson? Well, we don't know, do we? Some suggest that um, Jonah is the one who's written um, this book. And so if that's the case, while well, the fact that he's included all the dumb stuff and all the temper tantrums and all the self-centred prayers indicates that he'd at some point perhaps worked it through and realised that this was important and inspired by God, uh, he wrote the story with all its ugly truth. That suggests that at some point he may have learned his lesson and come to his senses. But we don't know that, not from the story. All we know is that the story ends abruptly 
and it's designed to pull us up as hearers, <clears throat> it's designed to pull us up as readers. We're supposed to sit there, like we probably did for that first split second after George read it to us. We're supposed to sit there like the drama's ended, the curtains have drawn and we're just there in darkness going, what is that it? Kind of stunned and numb. What do I feel towards undeserving people who experience God's mercy and grace? Even though I've experienced it myself in the first place. Am I quick to judge others by my own sense of right and wrong? Of what's deserving and what's undeserving? Am I even quicker to complain, to get angry at God and other things, even more trivial, when he chooses to be merciful and gracious and to turn away his righteous judgment from those who deserve it? For us to demand that God, or to give an account to us, is petulant, isn't it? And so childish. So there's the question for each one of us. How's your heart in this area? How is your heart when it comes to hearing stories or seeing accounts of people who you don't think deserve a second chance? I think Evan challenged us the best, didn't he, a few Sundays ago when he gave us that very contemporary example to say, can you imagine if the Taliban had a change of heart and turned from their wicked ways and turned towards God's forgiveness and realised that the great prophet Jesus was in fact his one and only son, his Messiah, his King, and that repentance and faith is the way to connect to the God that they're trying to serve in all sorts of brutal and militant ways. It was a stark reminder, wasn't it? How do we feel about that? Well, while you're thinking about that, I want us to jump forward about a thousand years from Jonah and just finish off as we prepare for communion to remind ourselves of the story that Jesus told. It's a familiar one. It's one that he told to religious Israelites who gathered around him to listen to his teachings. It's the story of the prodigal son. And the story of Jonah and the parable of the prodigal son have startling similarities in what God wants us to hear this morning. You know the parable. Let me just summarise it for you quickly. A reckless and rebellious son asks for his share of his father's inheritance. He runs off uh, to a far country to spend wildly and live loudly for himself. Eventually, the money and all the friends that come with money uh, run out and he's left with nothing. He's all alone. He's with his thoughts and regret. And he eventually gets some work and some shelter in a pig pen where he finally comes to his senses and thinks, even the servants in my father's home do better than me. I know what I'll do. I'll go and repent of my ways and I'll beg my father to hire me as a worker. So he makes his way home. But before he even gets close enough to the family house, his longing, waiting, gracious and merciful father has spotted him coming from a mile off and he gets up and he runs out to meet his long-lost son. We've looked at this extensively, haven't we, as a church? And you remember that um, proud landowners, uh, men in general uh, in, in that culture, don't ever run for anything. Unless they're running away from imminent danger. And, and they, they just don't let themselves do that. But this is how compelled this father was to run. And he embraces this long-lost son. And the Bible tells us that he kisses him and kisses him and kisses him three times. The son goes to give his repentant speech. He's thought it all through. 
The father won't even have a bar of it, doesn't let him even get into the first sentence. He calls for a robe, he, a, a ring, he instructs his servants, come and, come and adorn this son, return to him who he once was as one of, one of my sons in my home. And we're going to celebrate. Big barbecue tonight, a wonderful celebration because this son who was once lost is now found. Meanwhile, of course, there's another brother, isn't there? Who from a distance hears the loud music and the celebration barbecue going on. I had the, uh, of that famous uh, Rembrandt painting, which kind of shows that mysterious figure actually at the centre of the image. Do you remember it? Um, the father embracing the prodigal son, but there's this mysterious figure in the centre of the painting looking on, and you can sort of zoom in and understand that that's the older brother. A lone figure. He's been a hard worker on the family farm, property. He's a faithful and obedient son to his father. He's never rebelled, so he thinks. He's never been reckless, unlike his little brother. He's hardworking and he's deserving of his father's favour, just by right of birth, so he thinks. The older brother grabs a servant and says, what on earth's going on? What's with this celebration? What's with this party? And he hears the account of his younger brother returning home and his father just lavishing love on him and restoring him to his previous position in the family and what's the older brother's response to his father's mercy and grace Luke 15 verse 28 the older brother became angry and refused to go in so his father went out and he pleaded with him and the parable ends with this uh, from the merciful these words from the merciful and gracious father in verse 32 my son my son he says to this older brother we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's now found. Does that sound similar to you, to the story of Jonah and Nineveh? You see, we who think we're obedient, we who think we're religious, we who think that we're deserving of God's favour, that we do the right thing in response to God's mercy towards us, are the ones who are in the greatest danger of being like Jonah. We're the ones in the greatest danger of being like the older brother. We're the ones for whom the stark ending in Jonah's story has been written for. We're the ones in danger of being angry at God uh, and shown in all sorts of different ways, um, bubbling out at other things, small and insignificant. But that's what it is, angry at God for changing his mind, angry at God for choosing to forgive undeserving people out of his mercy and grace. We're the ones who are most likely going to see ourselves in the older brother in that story of the prodigal son, We've done all the right things, well, at least we think we have. We're deserving of God's mercy and grace. We were born into it for many of us. But time and time again, God reminds us of that confronting question. Is it right for you to be angry with me? Is it right for you to be angry with me for being merciful and gracious towards others who you don't think deserve it? And the unwritten answer, the rhetorical answer is obvious, isn't it? Who do we think we are? Who do we think we are? Do we really think we're deserving of God's mercy and grace just by what we've done for him, our religiosity, our commitment, our sacrifice? Like there's anything worthy and righteous about our inner selves, our thoughts and our attitudes? I mean, come on. Just because we've heard of God's mercy and believed in faith, just because we're faithful to God and do good things for him doesn't make us any better than those other people out there. Now we're the ones who, like Jonah, stand condemned for such a presumption. 
We're the ones who, like the older brother, are far off from all the wonderful joy and freedom of this barbecue celebration that our Heavenly Father gladly welcomes us into. Not because of what we've done or who we are, but only because of what God has done and who His Son, Jesus, is. Father, as we prepare our hearts again as your people, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it pierces our hearts, able to separate the very core of our being, able to reveal truth and expose our desperate need of you, of your mercy and of your grace and of your love. We thank you that even though we may more readily identify with Jonah and the older brother, they too still receive your grace freely. You still provide for us, even though you expose our hearts and you challenge us in those areas. We thank you for um, the opportunity to come as your people and to sing your praises and to reflect upon what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, that undeserved mercy and grace that you've poured out onto us that only Jesus deserved that we certainly didn't. Father, we thank you for this simple meal that we gather around, that we can partake partake in together, showing our unity and the levelling of who we are as we come before uh, your throne and as we come before the foot of the cross. We thank you for your mercy and your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask for the the helpers um, to come down. Uh, the front, and uh, and also for our lovely musicians and singers to um, to come up and just to uh, just to be waiting. They're going to lead us in a a beautiful song. Um, 